Well, the psalmist tells us, sing to the Lord a new song. How amazing is it when we can sing a song that echoes the very truths that we've been focused on all summer like that last song did. Throughout this summer, as we've considered what it means to live a life of faith, we've looked at seven different people, seven different people from the Old Testament, each of whom walked with God and stepped out in faith and placed their trust solely in him. And we, each week, encourage one another that the God who is, is the same God who was to these figures in the Old Testament. He has not changed. He is faithful. Each week we've been looking at a life of faith. This week, as we continue our study in Hebrews that launches us back into the Old Testament, there's a different question that confronts us. We certainly want to be people who live lives of faith. But this morning, we want to consider what would it look like to live a life so full of faith that even our death is marked as full of faith. Faithful in life, faithful even in death. It's a good vision, isn't it, for life? Isn't that what we long for? Well, this morning, as we consider the life of Joseph, that is a statement that is absolutely true of him. Faithful in life, faithful even unto death. The passage from Hebrews that will launch us into our study this morning is just one verse, Hebrews 11, verse 22. There the author says this, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Let me read it again. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Faithful in life, faithful even unto death. That's Joseph. If you're familiar with Joseph's life, you know that he lived an absolutely remarkable life. An incredible story of God's presence with him as he goes through these incredible ups and downs, just these amazing, amazing circumstances. But we also want to consider what did Joseph's life look like that led him to be called faithful even upon his death? That's what we want to consider this morning. As we look at Joseph's entire life, uh, an incredible 30-minute overview of the life of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 37 of Genesis. I'm going to start you there. My promise, my commitment to you is I'm going to try my best to tell you where we're at, okay? We are covering a lot of verses. Joseph's life, just like Jacob's, covers really the last 20 chapters of the book of Genesis. It's an incredible story with so many different circumstances that are worth relating and relaying on to you. So that's what I want to do this morning. Keep your thumb in Genesis 37, but Joseph's story actually begins in Genesis 30. That's where we learn of his very birth. Joseph was born to Jacob, and it was late in Jacob's life that Joseph was born. And it was that fact, along with the fact that Joseph was born to Jacob through Rachel, that ended up meaning that Jacob had a certain affection for Joseph. 
was the son of his late life, and it also was the son of the person who was essentially his first love, Rachel. And because of that, he looked with favor. He looked with preference upon Joseph. And really, he became the favorite. He was the one that everyone knew was the one that his, his uh, heart preferred, the one that he wanted to give favor to. And you can imagine in any family, anytime there is a favorite, even in a group of friends when there's a favorite, it starts to stir up some resentment, doesn't it? The people who aren't the favorite start to resent the recipient of that favor. And that's precisely what happened in Jacob's family and what happened to Joseph. We read about that in Genesis 37, verse 3. Here the author says, Now Israel, that is Jacob's name after the Lord changed it. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Now, Joseph's coat is something that we all learn about if we ever were in Sunday school, right? From a young age, we talk about, you know, Joseph and the many colored coat. Here they call it a multicolored tunic, which is quite fancy, isn't it? I don't know if anyone has a multicolored tunic on this morning. Make no mistake, that coat that became so famous really was a symbol of Jacob's favor for Joseph. It was a symbol that he was the favorite son. It was extravagant, and it also seemed to express some semblance of authority in the family. Joseph was the favored one. He was the preferred one. And it would have been a constant kind of physical embodiment and salt in the wounds for Joseph's brothers. A physical representation of the favoritism that already was something stirring up resentment in their heart. Every time Joseph came along, they were reminded, oh, here's dad's favorite. Be a little bit like if today there was a family that had two children and they decide when they turn 16, we're gonna buy them both cars. And so they buy the first one, a Chevy Cruze. And by the way, a Chevy Cruze is a great car. If you have a Chevy Cruze, it's a great car. But then they buy the second, a Chevy Corvette. Cherry red, brand new. And wherever the two of them show up, everyone knows who gets the preference, who is the most favored, who is the favorite child. That's precisely what Joseph's coat represented. And it did stir up more resentment in his brothers. What Jacob did for Joseph did not help matters. Joseph also himself didn't necessarily help matters either. I love it that our Old Testament kind of figures that we look at are, are not perfect individuals. And I think in this moment, Joseph demonstrates maybe just a little bit of arrogance. Because there's a moment where Joseph has two dreams. He has these two dreams. And in these two dreams, his father and his brothers are bowing down to him. And you know, you might think because there's a little bit of an atmosphere of toxicity and jealousy and envy, you might think, you know, maybe I'll just keep this dream to myself. But that's not what Joseph did. Joseph told his father and his brothers about that dream. And they were indignant. 
They were indignant about what Joseph was relaying to them. And for Joseph's brothers, this anger they had, this hatred they had was stirred up and it gave birth to murderous intent. They wanted nothing to do with their younger brother. Well, it came to pass one day that they were out in the fields tending to sheep, the older brothers were, and Jacob said to Joseph, why don't you go find your brothers? And we learn that as Joseph approached his brothers, when he finally found them out in the fields, we learn that they began to talk to one another. And Genesis gives us insight as to what they said. In chapter 37, verses 19 and 20, we read this. They say to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then continuing in verse 20, then let us see what will become of his dreams. Can you just hear the seething hatred that they have for their brother? They say, yeah. (laughs) They say, let's kill him. Now, fortunately, the oldest of the brothers, Reuben, intervened. And he said, let's not kill him. Let's not do something so severe. Let's just merely throw him in a pit, leave him to die essentially. And so that's what they did. They remove his coat. They throw him in a pit. But before long, there's a band of travelers coming through the land of Canaan. And the brothers essentially decide we might as well make a profit off of this dreamer. And so they sell him into slavery to this band of travelers. Before long, Joseph is now on his way down to Egypt. Eventually, he'll be on the trading block and he'll be sold into slavery under the master of a house, a master named Potiphar, a leader in the Egyptian kind of guard, a a bodyguard for Pharaoh himself. We have to just stop for a moment and just say how, how challenging this must have been for Joseph at this moment to maintain eyes of faith. Each week when, we be considering, when, when we've been considering what it is to live a life of faith, we've talked about how when the bottom drops out, it gets so difficult. You start to wonder, where is God in this moment? Where is he? Certainly that had to be going through Joseph's very mind. He went from a position of favor in his father's household into a pit, into the hands of traveling tradesmen. And then he became a slave. And he's now in a foreign land, among foreign people who speak a foreign tongue and worship foreign gods. And you have to think that Joseph is sitting there and he's wondering how how is God going to get me out of this? There is seemingly no exit to the circumstance he finds himself in. There's just no question that maintaining faith in this moment would have been an incredible challenge. But as we continue, we get a little insight as to what helped Joseph maintain a perspective of faith. As we skip forward to Genesis chapter 39, in verse two, we read this. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant over his house and all that he owned, he put in his charge. And then if we skip ahead to verse six, so he, that is Potiphar, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge 
And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Oh, Joseph's life is just incredible. Incredible highs, incredible lows. And here we reach a high point, right? God was with him. God's very presence was with him, was blessing him, was causing him to prosper, was causing others to see that in Joseph something different was happening. He was a person who could be trusted. And as God worked along with Joseph's actions, as along with Joseph's presence in that house, God elevated him to the very top of the household. He's now overseeing the household, the entire household of an Egyptian officer, so much so that Potiphar says, I'm only going to think about what I have to eat. Everything else is entrusted to you. Just incredible. God's presence with him. You know, we said way back at the beginning of this series that faith is something that grows. It's not like a light switch. You just turn it on and off. No, it's something that grows as we step out in faith. We trust God. We believe he is with us. We step out and we say, Lord, I am trusting you. I'm trusting that you are engaged in my very circumstances. So even though it may not make sense, I'm stepping out and I'm trusting you. And then we see that God shows up. He meets us and he brings about that which only he can bring about. And what happens, our faith gets strengthened. We're more ready, we're more primed to take another step of faith the next day. And I have no doubt that in this moment, as Joseph went from the literal pit in Canaan to being in charge of an Egyptian official's household, his faith was fortified. He knew that God was with him. Even when his circumstances seemed dire, he saw that God's hand was upon him and it strengthened his very faith. God's hand was with him. But of course, as we all know, that even when God's hand is with us, that doesn't mean that everything goes perfectly. And that's just what we see as we continue in verse six, just the second part of verse six, it says this. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Now, if you're familiar with Joseph's story, maybe you're like me, this is this moment in Joseph's life that I just admire him so greatly because in this moment, Joseph's very character, his virtuous character, his desire to obey God just shines through. What we see is that Potiphar's wife continually, repeatedly attempted to seduce him. She wanted to be with him and Joseph continually rejected that offer, continually maintained integrity. And as we all know, right, when we do the right thing, it always turns out well for us, right? Always. Hmm. Well, Potiphar's wife became so obsessed with Joseph. She became so persistent in her pursuit of him that at one point she grabbed hold of him. And Joseph, in response, does something incredibly virtuous and really gives us insight as to how we should deal with temptation. He runs. He just gets out of there. But she's clinging to him so tightly that she grabs on, and when he runs away, a piece of his garment is left in her hand. And essentially, in spite, Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph. If she can't have him, she will accuse him of trying to essentially force himself on her 
the very thing she essentially was trying to do to him. She was trying to seduce him, but she went and said, no, he's trying to do that to me. And of course, for a servant, for a slave in an Egyptian official's household, there's no recourse for Joseph. It's Potiphar's wife's word versus Joseph's word. And of course, Joseph stood no chance. And in response to this news, Potiphar throws Joseph into an Egyptian prison. Just another crushing setback in Joseph's life. Joseph's life reminds us that life is not this kind of series of of victories, right? We have ups and downs. Everyone here today can resonate with that. We know that there are times where things are going wonderfully and then just one day everything turns. Oh, we wish it was this plateau. We reached the heights and we just stayed up there, but that's just not the way it goes. And Joseph's life is certainly this roller coaster, incredible ups, incredible downs, but there is one thing that is consistent in his life. God is present with Joseph. God was with him. We are told that at the beginning of the episode in Potiphar's household, and now as he is in this jail, we are told that once again, as we skip ahead in chapter 39 to verse 21, here's Joseph in jail, and we are told in verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And skipping ahead to verse 23, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. God with Joseph, right in the midst of these awful circumstances and it's God's presence with Joseph and his acknowledgement of God's presence with him that comes and brings God's favor upon him. And he elevates Joseph once again into a position of authority. Oh, he's still in jail, but now he's basically in charge of the jail that he is in. Just an incredible moment. Now in time, a series of events is going to unfold in Joseph's life. It takes place in chapters 40 and 41 that is going to to essentially bring him to the heights of power in Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. The way that starts to transpire takes place in this very jail. As he's in jail, Joseph gets some jailmates one day. Apparently, the cupbearer for Pharaoh and the baker for Pharaoh did something that displeased him. And so Pharaoh threw them also into jail along with Joseph. And as they are there, these two Men, the cupbearer and the baker, have a dream. Now, dream interpretation at this time in the ancient Near East was a really kind of specific science. It was something they took very, very seriously. There were magicians in Pharaoh's court. There were interpreters that would, would be kind of knowledgeable about how to interpret dreams. There were entire books written that indicated this is what this symbolizes and this is what the gods are trying to communicate to you through this dream. It took dreams very seriously. But of course, two prisoners having a dream in an Egyptian jail certainly wouldn't merit the attention of Pharaoh's interpreters. And so these two gentlemen, the cupbearer, the baker, they had a dream, but no one to interpret. But Joseph was there and Joseph was with God. And God told Joseph what these dreams meant. And so Joseph told these men, I will interpret the dream. So he proceeded to tell the cupbearer and the baker, this is what these dreams mean. 
Essentially, the outcome of these dreams was that the cupbearer was going to be restored to prominence, restored to favor with Pharaoh. He'll be back in Pharaoh's court, but the baker, well, the baker is going to be executed. He will be put to death. And in time, that's precisely what happened. It occurred precisely as Joseph said. Now, Joseph urged the cupbearer, hey, when this occurs, will you let Pharaoh know what happened, that I was the one that interpreted? Hopefully, maybe Pharaoh would release him from jail or something positive would happen. But we don't know whether the cupbearer forgot or he just didn't want to do that. But Pharaoh never learned of Joseph's ability. So the cupbearer is restored. The baker is executed. And Joseph, well, Joseph is still in that prison. And I'm sure in that moment... He was asking, Lord, how long? How long will I be in these circumstances? Is it going to be another day, another week, another month? What we learn is that two years passed. Two years. Clinging to faith, believing that God was with him. Believing in the unseen hand of God. Overseeing his life. It's after two years that another dream occurs. This time the dream is Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh had a dream and it troubled him greatly. And so he sought out his interpreters. He sought out his magicians and none of them were able to give an adequate, a satisfactory interpretation of this dream, these dreams. So it was at this moment that the cupbearer apparently remembered Joseph and the cupbearer said, hey, there is a Hebrew in jail and he, he can interpret dreams. So Pharaoh calls for Joseph and Joseph comes out of prison proceeds and kind of comes in front of the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And he tells Pharaoh, now, it's not that I have this power, but God can interpret this dream. And so Pharaoh tells Joseph what his dream was. And Joseph says to him in chapter 41, verse 25, he begins the interpretation of the dream this way. He says, God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. In other words, Pharaoh, God is in charge of this. And this is what is going to happen. As Joseph proceeded, he explained that what was about to occur in Egypt was that they were going to enter into seven years of just a bountiful harvest, an incredible, prosperous time in the, in the history of Egypt. The crops would be good, but that would be followed up by seven years of absolutely severe famine, famine so severe it would ravage the entire earth. It would make the seven years of bounty look like nothing. That's how severe the famine was going to be. Joseph continued and he said, what you need to do is you need to have someone in charge to oversee the management of how you are going to prepare for these seven years of famine that will be coming. So Pharaoh listened to all this. He took it all in and then he looked at Joseph and he said, you'll be the person. I want you to oversee the management of these seven years of plenty that we might be prepared for these seven years of famine. So Joseph, once again, in another incredible turn of events, moves from the prison in Egypt to the seat of power, essentially unfathomable power and authority essentially the vice president of Pharaoh. God brings that about in his life and 
Pharaoh once again sees it in Joseph. Here is someone that is trustworthy. And Pharaoh once again extends all of this trust, all of this power, all of this authority to Joseph. Listen to Pharaoh's words in chapter 41, verses 40 and 41. Pharaoh says to him, you shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne, I will be greater than you. See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Boy, can you imagine? Joseph's head must have been spinning, but God was with him. And in time, famine did come. And God working with Joseph, providing him with wisdom, providing him with insight, allowed him to manage those seven years of plenty such that in time when the famine came, Egypt was essentially the breadbasket of the entire world. Joseph living by faith, leading an entire nation. The famine, just as predicted, was massive. It covered the entire known world, started in the Nile Delta down in Egypt, extended up around the Mediterranean basin, up into the land of Canaan, the land of Joseph's birth, the land of promise, and the place where Joseph's father, Jacob, and his brothers still were. They were still living. And in time, Jacob heard that that Egypt was a place that had plenty of grain. They somehow were prepared for what was coming. And so he said to his 10 oldest sons, I want you to go down to Egypt and gather grain that we might be able to survive this famine. If you haven't read this story recently, I would encourage you just to read it this week. Just read through the incredible encounter of Joseph interacting with his brothers as they have this reunion. Can you imagine the drama of that moment? Of course, Joseph's brothers, as they, as they went south towards Egypt, right, all of them except Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, there's no way they could have expected that they would ever meet Joseph again. As far as they knew, he was gone. He was either dead or he was a slave in, in somewhere in Egypt, and they didn't certainly expect that this trip to Egypt would, would allow them to encounter their brother. They weren't expecting it. Therefore, when they saw him, they did not recognize him. But Joseph recognized his brothers. Joseph recognizes brothers and he came face to face with the ones that threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery and essentially set him on this course of horrific events. And we have to say, these are horrific events. And as Joseph encounters his brothers, can't you just imagine, doesn't just your flesh wanna say, I hope he let them have it. Because what they did was evil. It was evil. And at first, Joseph is somewhat crafty with his brothers. He's a little tricky, but eventually his compassion shines through. Compassion shines through towards his brothers and he reveals who he is and he gives them grain. And he says to them, I want to see my father again. I want to see Benjamin again. Can you come back? And then he offered them essentially a faith-filled interpretation of the events that had transpired in his life. His words are just absolutely astounding as we consider just the fullness of faith that he had that allowed him to see the events of his life in this way. If you turn to chapter 45, it's in verse four. In this moment of reunion, Joseph says to them in Genesis 45, verse four, 
I am your brother, Joseph. Just had to imagine their hearts just dropped at that moment, or at least their jaws dropped. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. A few words later, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Is that not amazing? Just this remarkable statement. It reveals exactly who Joseph was. Joseph walked by faith, looking for God's presence in the midst of his circumstances throughout his entire life, trusting that God's hand was upon his life, watching as God elevated him out of horrible circumstances. And his faith grew and grew and grew such that in this moment where where maybe in the flesh someone would just lash out, he instead says, God has been up to something extraordinary. What you did was horrible. But God has been overseeing this moment. And he recognizes in hindsight God's hand every step of the way. In our very first week in this series, we studied Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 3, where that definition of faith is given to us. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith, the assurance of things Hope for. In other words, we might not see it right away. It's going to be coming down the line. And the conviction of things unseen, meaning we might not see it with our physical eyes. It might not be obvious to us. We have to have eyes of faith that look for the unseen hand of God working in the midst of our circumstances, even when they are horrible. That's precisely what Joseph did. Faith believes that God is the great unseen keeper of promises. Faith believes that God is the one in charge of all things. He is the one that is present with us. Whether our circumstances are good or our circumstances are horrible, we believe that God is at work. That is faith. It's precisely how Joseph lived his life. Up to this moment, we see that building and building and building. And then this moment, he gives this faith-filled response. This is what God has been up to. Now, what's astounding to me is we began in Hebrews 11, verse 22. And in that moment, the author of Hebrews doesn't mention any of the stuff we talked about here this morning. These are incredible stories, incredible acts of faith astounding to me. So in this moment when the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage a people who are being persecuted, he doesn't refer to any of this. Instead, he refers to Joseph's final words upon his death. Those words occur in chapter 50, the very last chapter of Genesis and some of the last verses of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 24 and 25. Here are Joseph's dying words. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. The author of Hebrews summarizes it this way. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Joseph's life is amazing. Certainly an incredible testimony of just a faithful trust, a faithful belief in the God who oversees all things. And it's not just remarkable, it's almost unrelatable, you know? You know, I mean, Joseph is this person that oversaw an entire nation. And so my fear in that is that we'll look at Joseph and we'll say, well, that's pretty amazing, but I can't relate to that. Right? I'll never be the vice president. What do I do with that? Oh, but we can't, we can't allow ourselves to slip into that kind of thinking. Joseph was set in charge over much. That happened to him over and over again. But the truth is, is that all of us here this morning, we've all been given say over something. We've all been set in charge of something. That's actually God's image in us. We've been, we've been made to have dominion. We've been put in charge of things. Some of us have been put in charge of great things. Some of us just put in charge of small things, but all of us have say over something. So as we gather together and we talk about what it means to live a life of faith, part of what that means is that we encourage one another as we manage the things that God has given to us. We become people or we seek to be people that that seek to hear from God as to how to do that. We seek to do it trusting that he would do it better than us. And so we go to him and we say, Lord, I, I don't know how to manage this. I don't know how to be in charge of this well. Will you help me? And we believe that he is with us right in the midst of our very circumstances and he is ready to give us insight. For some of us, that might be big things, right? I know people in this room who, who are in charge of businesses. I know people in this room who are teachers in a classroom, and the classroom is kind of their domain. I know people that, that don't have large things they're overseeing, but they are overseeing their life. They're overseeing their schedule and their family. High schoolers, kids, your phone. Now that is something that is a great responsibility, and God has given you charge over that. To walk by faith is to seek God and say, Lord, help me understand how to do this well. How do I oversee these things well? Give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Just like Joseph got discernment from God as he was put in charge of much. All of us have been given say over something. And so as people of faith, we seek to hear from him. No matter what our circumstances is, whether they be good or bad, we seek to hear from him believing he is present with us. Each week as we talked about that, living this life of faith, we talked about how sometimes it's challenging, it's hard to live a life of faith. We've said that. But you know, as I was reflecting on Joseph's life, you know what I've determined is just even more challenging. Absolutely, it's challenging to trust God with that which we've been given say over, that which, which we've been given, that's hard. It's even more difficult to trust him with that which we have no say over. There are just things in our life where we don't have control. No matter how much we want to, to 
to fix things or, or correct things or be in charge. We aren't in charge. And so we have to trust God with things that we have no say over. And sometimes that is incredibly difficult. And here at the end of his life, Joseph was anticipating death, knowing that God was calling his people back to a promised land and he, he entrusted his bones to someone else. It's an incredible step of faith. I mean, just think about Joseph. He's in charge of a lot of things in Egypt, right? He has a lot of power. And I don't know if you have ever thought about some of the headstones that are in Egypt, but they're quite large, right? Like they're pyramids, right? They take death very seriously. They take the oversight of their bones. Where will they be laid to rest? They take that very seriously. And I don't know that Joseph ever could have built a pyramid, but, but he certainly could have built himself a pretty phenomenal mausoleum or something. He could have orchestrated every step of how his death would occur and how his bones would be cared for. But rather, by faith, the man that orchestrated the feeding of the entire world entrusted his future, entrusted his bones upon his death to the brothers that sold him into slavery. How did he do that? Well, he did it by faith. He did it by faith knowing that even when he closed his eyes in death, God was still in charge. How did he know that? Well, he knew it because he had seen it over and over again. He had seen that although he had been put in charge of much, God ultimately was in charge and God consistently had pulled him out of situations that seemed impossible and God is able to do whatever he wants. He had seen God work and he knew God would do it again. You know, throughout his life, a number of people saw Joseph and said, that's someone I can trust. I'm going to put him in charge of a lot. So you go from Potiphar to the jailer to the Pharaoh, trusting in Joseph. But you know, Joseph, all the while, Joseph trusted in God. Joseph knew God was in charge. Joseph placed his faith in God. He trusted in God and he trusted him each day of his life, all the way, even unto his death. Faithful in life. Faithful all the way unto death. What are you walking through? I know stories in this room. I know that there are incredibly difficult circumstances. Each one of us go through highs and we go through lows. As people of faith, do you believe that God is able is he able to bring you out of a circumstance that you find yourself in? Do you believe that God is present? He is present right in the midst of the circumstance that you're walking through and he is ready. He is ready to give you wisdom and discernment and knowledge as to how to walk faithfully through whatever you find yourself in. Do you believe that even when things are going horribly, that just like Joseph, one day you'll be able to say, although certain people intended this for evil, God used it for good. I think Paul echoes that very sentiment at the end of Romans 8, Romans 8, 28, where he says, for those of us who are in Christ, 
God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God is in charge. Joseph, we're told, trusted God, lived by faith even in his death. And that noteworthy remark in Hebrews, well, it is built upon a lifetime of seeing God show up. Joseph trusted God with his life. He lived by faith and therefore the easy, the routine thing for him to do at the moment of his death was to extend trust to the God that had been faithful. As we seek to be people of faith, as we seek to live lives of faith, each day we surrender ourselves to God and we increasingly come to know that he is present with us. No matter what we're going through, he is present. No matter what we're going through, he knows. Oh, in the Old Testament, he gave his spirit at times and to certain people, but for those of us in Christ, his spirit has been poured out upon us. He is with us right now, right here, whatever you are going through. And in time, as we see him show up again and again, we may become people who joyfully surrender control to him, trusting that he is able, he is present, and he is faithful because he is the one in charge. And so we seek to be people, people that live that way today and then see God show up that we might live that way tomorrow. And yes, even unto our very death, that at the end of our days, we might say, God, you are faithful. Therefore, we are full of faith. Will you join me as we lift these things up to our Father? Lord, you are faithful. We're astounded by your faithfulness to us, even as we consider the lives of people like Abraham and Joseph. Lord, we don't look at those things as relics of the past, dry and dusty, just old history. No, this is a living truth because you are a living God. And you are the same. The God that brought Joseph into prominence, Lord, that is who you are and you will do it again. And so, Lord, we pray you will give us eyes of faith to believe that you are present, to believe that you're in charge, to believe that no matter what we're going through, you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, and you will bring about the fulfillment of your very promises to us. Lord, we ask that you would do this for the sake of your name. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.